Healing Patience for Eternity is the title for tonight, and uh, we've just heard a story uh, that goes along with that um, that just uh, happened recently. Also, the subtitle of our conference, the Amen Conference, is Joined Together. And I noticed uh, this afternoon uh, when I was in a meeting, I was just going through the um, the brochure that many of you have and uh, happened to um, look at my biography. And uh, I realized that my bio is old and no longer accurate. Uh, I'm sure uh, Becca probably sent it to me and asked me to review it, but you know it just didn't get reviewed. And I think it's been uh, several years. But uh, on there, I did uh, uh, several years ago. This was probably when I was joining Weimar when that bio was written. Uh, we talked about the souls that had been won as a result of our practice. And of course, that had been souls that had really been solely the result of the practice. Now, as a result of the uh, blended ministry, uh, working with a uh, pastor who loves the blended ministry, uh, we've had many more baptisms. In fact, I, uh, it's beyond our, um, the ability to, I mean, I should say we probably could count it out if we, um, if we took the time, but it would be far more that's mentioned in the bio. And that just gives us an example that when we do team up, a physician and a pastor team up in blended ministry, the, uh, the results can be exponential uh, over um, working alone. A little bit of b before we begin, uh, as it was mentioned, uh, we are at, uh, at Weimar Institute, and our motto is to heal a hurting world physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. And we are in a world that is hurting in all of those ways. And uh, there is more need for the healing ministry of Christ than there ever has been before. We've had some exciting things happen just within the last month at Weimar Institute. Uh, the State Board of California improved a RN program at Weimar, realizing it was the first alternative medicine nursing program in the state. And, uh, and I believe they think it might also be in the country. I haven't looked it up to see if there is, an, quotes, an alternative medicine nursing program in the country. I don't think there is. But uh, we submitted our, our data, uh, I mean, what we were going to be teaching them uh, on the spiritual side, the evangelistic side, as well as the natural remedy side. And of course, they'll start, still learn how to put in IVs and NG tubes and Foley's and all of the nursing skills. Uh, plus, uh, and be able to sit for the nursing board. Uh, but the nursing board uh, themselves were excited about uh, Weimar branching out in this new area of, uh, of training in regards to an RN program. So uh, uh, if you know of uh, anyone who would uh, like to do this, in fact, one of the things we're emphasizing with the blended ministry is we'd like our, our RNs to also get a bachelor's in theology. Uh, and have the blended ministry uh, there together. And so if you know of uh, individuals who might uh, want to take advantage of that, um, certainly send them uh, the Weimar way. We also, uh, to our knowledge, are the first self-supporting college to have passed the eligibility phase for regional accreditation. We just got word of that a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this um, is something that uh, we're taking on 
um, with uh, CARE. This is uh, something that will allow us to offer advanced degrees as well and not just um, a bachelor's um, a type of degrees. But it's also a step that we wanted to take um, so thoughtfully that we would never be dependent on this for our existence. I know uh, some schools, as soon as they lose their regional accreditation, um, they're out <laughs> of business, so to speak, and they're gone within a few days uh, or a few weeks. And uh, Weimar has, uh, has been there for many years, and um, uh, whether we lose it or not, I, I, I can tell you this, uh, it is our commitment to never um, lose it on the basis of lack of our core of four. Our core of four is academic excellence, and of course, um, we have teachers and students that represent that, as well as health of body, mind, and soul. We want the student to be healthier when they leave Weimar than when they came to Weimar, uh, both physically, mentally, um, in all those five areas that we've mentioned. Uh, and then it's an evangelistic education where they are actually winning souls as part of their uh, training, and then practical um, uh, work experience as well, uh, particularly working with the hands. And so uh, if, if we do uh, lose it, it'll probably be on the basis of some um, a moral ground uh, that maybe the regional accreditation body doesn't necessarily agree with. Uh, but uh, so far, we have not found any um, uh, ways uh, in which, in fact, the fact that we passed, uh, being very open in regards to our standards, uh, tells us at this point there isn't any uh, moral discord with the regional accrediting body in regards to Weimar. And so uh, this is an exciting step and one that can uh, uh, advance us further. Healing patients for eternity. I know we're uh, speaking to an Adventist medical evangelism um, audience. Uh, and uh, I have to keep this in mind. In fact, I had to tell the Audioverse person uh, uh, tonight, uh, a lot of um, what I've stated has been sometimes shown on the internet to select groups and then uh, groups that are planning on inviting me to speak to the government or other places they don't understand. I'm not speaking to them. I'm speaking to maybe a group like this, and so they misunderstand some things. So I had to have a conversation with um, uh, Audioverse about that uh, before this meeting. But uh, I do know the audience that I'm speaking to. It is the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. Uh, and as a result, um, I think that many of you have heard, as I have, and I think I would agree with this, uh, that the evidence at the end is here is pretty overwhelming. Uh, there's really only one Protestant church left. Uh, a Protestant church is one that protests, and mo most of the other Protestant churches are saying the protest is over. We have no disagreement. But also one of the hallmarks of a Protestant church is the Bible, and the Bible only is the rule of faith and doctrine, not tradition and the Bible. And uh, this is a, uh, a, a church, a movement that that is based solely on the word of God. The deadly wound has been healed. Would you agree with that? And there is a lot of worshiping going on.
as was mentioned in Revelation 13. But as we're sitting here tonight, and as I'm standing here, I think we can also state that the right arm of God's church is still withered to at least a large extent. What am I basing this on? Well, let's, let's take a look at what prophecy tells us the right arm will be like before Christ comes. And we're not quite there yet. Before I get to that statement, why a healing message for these last days? Some have decided that this is not really part of our message, but is some sort of optional add-on. The healing message is something like, uh, well, in fact, I'll just um, tell you a few years ago, I was attending uh, my home church on a Friday night that I grew up in, in Troy, Michigan. And I had to speak in Flint uh, the next day, and so I came unannounced to my uh, home church and slipped in while there was an evangelistic series going on. And it happened to be the preacher was a very good preacher and was speaking about the health message. And when I got out of the uh, church, the head elder came up to me and said, it's too bad that we preach this in evangelistic meetings. This turns more people off from joining our church than any single message that we have. We should drop this from our evangelistic series. Uh, in, in his mind, the, the health message might have some good. It's an optional add-on, but it's certainly not really part of evangelism. Uh, but I think it's very clear the healing ministry of Christ will not be bypassed before his coming. If you remember, Christ did three things when he was here on this earth. What were the three things he did? He taught, he preached, and what else did he do? He healed. And he wants us to do what he did. It will still be teaching, healing, and proclaiming. Now here's the prediction. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress because of the inflowing of hundreds and thousands of streams until the whole earth as covered as the waters cover the sea. The medical missionary work is going to cover this globe. And that's why, even though we are living in the last days, Christ is not coming tomorrow. He is waiting for this blended ministry to explode upon the earth, city by city, country by country. Medical missionary work. No matter what specialty, it involves some aspect of lifestyle change. And if you're in a specialty where you do not think it involves any aspect of lifestyle change, I would encourage you to speak to me after the meeting. And I'll help you to see that even your specialty actually uh, can be involved in some aspect of lifestyle change, either on the part of the patient, which is going to be most specialties, or maybe the part of the physician uh, in some uh, specialties. And this is a change that can be agreed upon by both the physician, dentist, and patient that would be in the best interest of the patient. So it's not like the, the doctor is saying, you need to do this, patient, and the patient is saying, no, I don't need to do this. As a result of the educational session, and by, by the way, that's what physician means as a teacher, 
as a result of the educational session that you've just had with your patient, the patient is convinced. He doesn't need to go home and look it up and read more studies. He's convinced that you are right and that he does need to make a change. But the problem with that change is it often goes against human nature. And I'll tell you, this is something I had to learn a little bit more about. I had the advantage of growing up in a Seventh-day Adventist home by godly parents. I had the advantage of growing up in a home when my father, for instance, who was not in the best health, became educated on health. He made sudden, significant changes in his life with the Lord's help. And I saw a new father emerge. In fact, that's how I got interested in health and healing, when I saw my own father's health significantly improve. So I went through medical school. I went through residency, was practicing as a physician, and I came across this conference being interested in lifestyle medicine that I just had to go to. My son was only a few weeks old, my oldest son. It was 1991, and it was the first international conference on the elimination of coronary artery disease. It was in Tucson, Arizona, and I remember to this day the speakers. I remember the studies that they presented. As far as I know, I was the only Seventh-day Adventist in attendance. I looked around for others. There was no one else there. It was a large conference. I was the only one. And by the way, Dr. Howe, it was a plant-based diet that was being served to everyone at that conference. And I thought, they're talking about the elimination of coronary artery disease, and they're telling us that they know enough now to prevent, not only prevent this disease, but to reverse it and to eliminate it from the planet. How it different life is going to be 25 years. I'm just a young physician. 25 years from now when heart disease is not even in the top 100 causes of death. I mean, this is going to, I mean, we are on, this isn't, you know, Weimar New Start people talking about this. These are renowned researchers across the globe that everybody has respect for. But, you know, heart disease is still the number one killer in America. Why is that the case? Was it due to lack of good scientific information that they were giving us? No, it wasn't due to that at all. It, was actually, it is actually due to a mental illness that is prevalent in almost every person in this world. What is that mental illness? Lack of comprehensive self-control. Self-control has been studied recently. In fact, it's had a lot of research in the last 15 years. Baumeister is now the most quoted researcher in all of the world. And what is his primary research? Willpower and self-control. He says self-control failure is central to nearly all the personal and social problems that currently plague citizens of the modern developed world. Lack of self-control is actually the number one cause of heart disease. When we know what we need to do and we're not applying it in our life, it's actually a disease of the mind and no longer a disease of the heart. It's one of the reasons why Ellen White said nine out of ten diseases have their origin where? In the mind. 
diabetes, an epidemic in our society today. We're scratching our heads as regards to what to do about the expense of this. The average diabetic patient costs the government about $17,000 a year. And it's getting worse. They're expanding, not only in waistline, but in numbers of diabetics. We know how to prevent type 2 diabetes. When we're not putting it into practice, what's the problem? It's not the diabetic research, it's lack of self-control. Sexually transmitted diseases, still in the top 10 causes of death in our world. Lack of self-control. Stroke, often due to high blood pressure. Alcohol. Alcohol, by the way, is a major cause of stroke. They talk about it being a decreasing the risk of coronary artery disease, which it does, but it does increase the risk of both thrombotic and hemorrhagic stroke, something the news media won't often tell you, but the research is clear. Alcoholism itself is due to lack of self-control. Murder, far too common due to lack of self-control. Rape, far too common due to lack of self-control. Depression. When we know how to live a mentally healthy life, but we are not applying those principles in our life, depression is often due to lack of self-control. Cancer, 80% of cancers, according to Harvard, can be prevented by lifestyle measures that we know of. Lack of self-control, unwanted pregnancy, often due to lack, well, really always due to lack of self-control. Adultery and divorce. <laughs> uh, often due to lack of self-control. Unemployment. I've had a lot of great employees when they show up to work. But when they're not reliable and they don't show up, even though they're great employees when they show up to work, I often have had to disemploy them. It's a sad meeting. They'll actually disemploy themselves in that meeting because I'll talk about how we've given them lots of chances and how can we run a work environment in this way, and they'll say, you know, you're, you just need to just let me go <laughs> because I'm not helping you. Financial failure, often due to lack of self-control. In fact, our country is having corporate lack of self-control. Relationship problems, often due to lack of self-control. And then these addictions, techno addiction. What is a technology addiction? That's when someone's in an interesting environment and they're texting someone else who's far less interesting, who might be in the same room. <laughs> and studies show that when you are doing that, you actually have complications that are quite similar to being an alcoholic as far as the adverse problems. Well, you know, the Bible talks about this. Paul mentioned this. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So he talks about, he knew what was best but he was finding he wasn't doing it. And then the things he knew weren't best for him, he found himself doing it. He goes on. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. It's not that he disagreed with it. 
But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity, the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he exclaims this, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? When we are lacking in comprehensive self-control, the Bible calls us wretched. And it uses that term only one other time in Scripture. Anyone know where it's at? It's actually to the last church. Because ye say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are what? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Why does it also say that we're naked? We are not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This is a serious state to be in. Some people have mistakenly said that the wretched condition is just the ordinary life of a Christian. And you just need to accept that and you're going, you're, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ anyways? No, that's not what the Bible tells us. When we're wretched, we're naked. And we're in need, as the song says, of amazing grace. That does what? That saves us. Now, what is the secret to avoiding this wretchedness? I just mentioned a little bit of of what is needed, the amazing grace. But first, I want to show you what the researchers are telling us. These are secular researchers that tell us, or actually are showing us their studies on self-control. What they say is needed is temperance. Now, temperance is an old word, but it's being resurrected in the psychological circles. In fact, there's a, a, a new book called Character, Strengths, and Virtues, written by two secular psychologists, Dr. Peterson from University of Michigan, Dr. Seligman, University of Pennsylvania. And in that, they go through six different character strengths of temperance. And here's what they state. First of all, the definition. Temperance is moderation in things that are healthy and abstinence in things that are unhealthy. Strict temperance, they tell us, requires comprehensive self-control. Now, why are we using that term comprehensive? Everybody has selective self-control. You might think there's a person that has no self-control. No, they do have control of themselves at least in one area of their life. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to build up the big muscles, did it require self-control? In that area, it required meticulous self-control. But in an area where it was much more important for him to have self-control, when his maid was cleaning the house, he lacked it. And as a result, he lost the love of his life due to lack of comprehensive self-control. And this is a crucial thing to understand. Now, here's what the the researchers say, in our endeavor to measure this class of strengths, we have found that among people in the mainstream developed world, strengths of temperance are infrequently endorsed and seldom praised. 
In fact, I would say the opposite. I would say strengths of intemperance are frequently endorsed <laughs> and frequently praised. And they are. I'll just tell you of an example. Last week I was speaking to an organization. Uh, not, um, uh, it wasn't a, um, a church-based organization. Uh, and uh, I was speaking on, they had me speak to their organization, their, their leaders, um, three days, three mornings in a row. And I was speaking to them about mental health. First it was physical, well, no, first it was how to enhance the frontal lobe of the brain. The second day was emotional intelligence. And on the frontal lobe of the brain, I mentioned how caffeine suppresses the frontal lobe. There's actually very little argument on that. You know, even NFL quarterback coaches are telling their quarterbacks to consume zero caffeine now. It turns out in the National Football League, there's only one person required to have an intact frontal lobe to be successful on that field, and it happens to be the quarterback. Uh, he's analyzing information, and he's having to make a decision. Um, and, uh, and they make much better decisions when no caffeine is on board. And so I was telling them some of the research on caffeine and some of the recent research showing the silent killer emotional intelligence. And the next morning, one of the leaders of the organization comes up. And uh, he didn't introduce me the first day, but he introduced me the second day. And he says, you know, it was a very interesting talk yesterday. Uh, but I'll have you know, despite what Dr. Nedley said on caffeine, I still had my morning coffee. And a lot of people applauded, you know, applauding the, <laughs> applauding the intemperance, so to speak. Of course, he didn't really, I guess he did realize I was going to come up and speak after him. But uh, <laughs> uh, fortunately, I was speaking about emotional intelligence. And one of the last bullet points, the advantage of emotional intelligence, is if you have it, you're four times more likely to be able to overcome an addiction. And I put in the written part, it said, such as alcoholism. But I paused and said, such as caffeine addiction. And uh, <laughs> Of course, everybody uh, laughed in the room uh, at that point and, and looked at him. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, these intemperance is frequently applauded and praised as if it's something desirable. But in reality, here's what they say. The strengths of temperance are very important, and they have a rich array of positive consequences for the psychological good life. What they are telling us is, if you have comprehensive self-control, you're going to have a good life. You're going to have a psychologically good life. Now, to study it, yeah, I've mentioned there's been lots of studies in the last 15 years. First, you have to measure it. And I'll just take a snippet from uh, the most comprehensive test on self-control so you can get an idea of what they're measuring. You, you rate yourself one to five and uh, not at all to very much. I am good at resisting temptation. If you say very much on that, then that scores you as high self-control. See if you can get the next one. I have a hard time breaking bad habits. If you say very much on that, is that high or low? Low self-control. I do certain things that are bad for me if they are fun. Low self-control. I have trouble saying no. Low self-control. Getting up in the morning is hard for me. Low self-control. I blurt out whatever is on my mind. Low self-control. I spend too much money. Low self-control. I keep everything neat. 
High self-control. I get carried away by my feelings. Low self-control. I do many things on the spur of the moment. Low self-control. I don't keep secrets very well. Low self-control. I often interrupt people. Low self-control. I am always on time. High self-control. I'm not easily discouraged. High self-control. I eat healthy foods. High self-control. Pleasure and fun sometimes keep me from getting work done. Low self-control. I have trouble concentrating. Low self-control. Sometimes I can't stop myself from doing something even if I know it is wrong. Low self-control. I'm able to work effectively towards long-term goals. High self-control. Well, you get an idea of the test questions, and now they have looked at this in a number of different ways. People with higher self-control are linked to better personality adjustment, higher self-worth, better at controlling their anger, fewer symptoms of somatization, obsessive-compulsive patterns, depression, anxiety, hostile anger, phobic anxiety, paranoid ideation, and psychotic tendencies. By the way, some people are confused. Obsessive-compulsive patterns, I thought that's high self-control. Aren't those the ones that keep everything neat and make sure their hands are clean all the time? Well, here's the issue with OCD. You major in minors, but you're minoring in things that are far more important. And so that's showing, again, selective self-control, but comprehensive self-control is not there. People with high self-control, Interestingly, accept themselves as valuable, worthy individuals are relatively able to sustain this favorable view of self across time and circumstances. This occurred without registering inflated or narcissistic views of self. Arrogance is a problem. Uh, and so these people have a high sense of self-worth, but they do not think that they're more worthy than someone next to them. People with high self-control are more conscientious. They're more emotionally stable. They make better relationship partners. They get along better with other people. They're more accommodating. They report more satisfying relationships. They have better adjustment in their relationships. People with high self-control have better family cohesiveness, less interpersonal conflict, better perspective, and better empathy. They do not wallow in their own personal reactions to other people's problems. They have more secure interpersonal attachments. They manage money well, they spend less, and they save more. In addition, when they do wrong, it's kind of interesting what happens. This is, again, a quote from the secular researchers. In the course of daily life, in spite of their best efforts at self-control, people inevitably sin and transgress, at least on rare occasion. Would we be able to say that that is true? It can be. And now notice what happens. People with high self-control score relatively low in shame when this happens and high in shame-free guilt. What does that mean? Individuals with high self-control are inclined to take responsibility for their transgressions rather than externalizing blame or minimizing the importance of the transgression. In short, having done wrong, high self-control people are inclined to focus on the effects of their behavior and in so doing are inclined to make amends. In contrast, low self-control individuals are more apt to experience painful feelings of shame, an emotion that often provokes defensiveness and denial, rather than repair and redemption. This is a crucial feature for people to have. In other words, for you to improve, if you have high self-control, you're much more likely to improve yourself over time. Then leaders have been rated in it. 
They're rated by their subordinates as more trustworthy when they have high self-control. They're more fair. They're more consistent with other leaders. They experience less anger and better management of their anger when they do get angry. Did you know children can develop self-control? Those that do have fewer behavioral problems, fewer anger conflicts, better social functioning overall. They're actually more popular, not less popular, uh, with other children. And they score higher on SAT scores 10 years later. In fact, the best predictor of your child's SAT scores at age 16 is their self-control at age 6. So the researchers now look at it from the other perspective. What are the drawbacks of self-control? Here's their statement. There are no scientific studies anywhere demonstrating any undesirable consequences of high self-control. Tangney even tested for curvilinearity to see if excessive self-control might produce negative consequences. This is what we do with drugs. We keep pushing it until we see some negative consequences. But no negative patterns were found. Although in our society, they state, there may exist a stereotype of an over-controlled person, one who is overly restrained, cautious, uptight, and not spontaneous, we see no evidence that self-control is to be blamed. In other words, if you have any of those four problems, it's not due to self-control, it's due to other problems. <laughs> then this is the sad part of what these researchers are saying. Relatively little is known about how self-control is acquired and strengthened. This topic must be regarded as a high priority for further research, especially in view of the many benefits that self-control confers. So they build us up by saying, it's wonderful. It's part of the psychological good life. You're going to have a better family. You're, gonna have, uh, you're going to be more popular. You're going to spend less. You're going to save more. You're going, I mean, you just look at all of these aspects of self-control, and it's wonderful. And then they state, we don't know how to take someone with low self-control and turn them into someone with high self-control. They do give us some clues, however. They state this, most acts of self-control involve overcoming some incipient response to the immediate situation in order to pursue some greater long-term benefit. Hence, the ability to transcend the immediate situation is crucial. People who live only in the present moment are unlikely to exhibit good self-control, whereas future-mindedness will facilitate self-regulation. Now, what is the term in Scripture that means future-mindedness? It's one word called hope. And in the denominational name of Seventh-day Adventist, there's a word that means hope. What is it? It's the Adventists, the blessed hope. So what they're saying is, of all people that should have the most self-control, it should be Seventh-day Adventists, those who are future-minded. They don't quite say it that way. But there are some things that they do state. This is research from Stanford. This, this surprised the Stanford researcher. They're looking at willpower and self-control. It's the big hot topic in psychology right now. And they say bright lines help. People need bright lines. These really help with self-control. What is a bright line? Zero tolerance is a bright line. Total abstinence with no exceptions anytime. That helps with self-control. Sometimes people criticize this zero tolerance 
But if it is a principle, zero tolerance helps with self-control. In fact, they go on to say, if you believe that the rule is sacred, a commandment from God, the unquestionable law of a higher power, then it becomes an especially bright line. And they say that this helps even more. They even did a study where atheists recited the Ten Commandments, and they had them go through an exercise to see how much cheating they would do, and they actually did not cheat after reciting the Ten Commandments. Where when they cited their 10 most favorite books, they cheated. <laughs> uh, and so they were amazed at that sort of thing. And so uh, they talk about the bright lines. Rediscovering the greatest human strength, willpower again, Baumeister and John Turney. Well, I'm going to tell you how you can develop comprehensive self-control. Bright lines help. Future-mindedness helps. By the way, future-mindedness, in order to have that, you have to have a frontal lobe. That's, that is active and circulating. Frontal lobe function is critical to being able to see far into the future and to have wise goals. And so that's why we are always working on trying to, to help the frontal lobe through lifestyle measures. So those things help. But I will get to the fail-proof method. First, Proverbs. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. Ellen White comments on that text. He has conquered self, the strongest foe man has to meet. The highest evidence of nobility in a Christian is what? Self-control. He who can stand unmoved amid a storm of abuse is one of God's heroes. He who has learned to rule his spirit will rise above the slights, the rebuffs, the annoyances to which we are daily exposed, and these will cease to cast a gloom over his spirit. Can you see why this is also important for you to be Happy in this world? You, the slights, the rebuffs, the annoyances that you're daily exposed, you won't have a gloom if you have the nobility of self-control. Now she goes on, it is God's purpose that the kingly power of sanctified reason controlled by divine grace shall bear sway in the lives of human beings. He who rules his spirit is in possession of this power. The man or woman who preserves the balance of the mind when tempted to indulge passion stands higher in the sight of God and heavenly angels than the most renowned general that ever led an army to battle and to victory. Notice this. She says the man or woman who preserves the balance of the mind when tempted to indulge passion stands higher in the sight of God and heavenly angels than the most renowned general. We could also say the patient who preserves the balance of the mind when tempted to indulge passion stands higher in the sight of God and heavenly angels in the most renowned general. Bright lines, worthy goals, enhancing the frontal lobe, slowing down a limbic system in overdrive, those will help. But here is the fail-safe method. By the way, it's Romans 8, if you want to dissect it. That's why uh, uh, he wrote Romans 7, was to, to show you the solution at the end of Romans 7 and Romans 8. But I'll summarize some things that are in that text. What young men and women need is Christian heroism. To rule the spirit means to keep self under discipline. And notice how it's done. God's abounding love and presence in the heart will give the power of self-control and will mold and fashion the mind and character. 
The grace of Christ in the life will direct the aims and purposes and capabilities into channels that will give moral and spiritual power. Power which the youth will not have to leave in this world, but which they can carry with them into the future life and retain through the eternal ages. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have what, one to another? Love. If we would be true lights in the world, we must manifest the loving, compassionate spirit of Christ. To love as Christ loved means that we must do what? Practice self-control. It means that we must show unselfishness at all times and in all places. So, the key to self-control is self-sacrifice. It's self-sacrificing love. And true transformative healing is dependent on love. Love can change you, it can change your patient, and it can change the world. Not erotic love, not romantic love, or even brotherly love, as good as those are in the right times and places. But it's a love that human nature totally lacks. It's a love that has to come from outside of us, from God, that self-sacrificing, agape love coming in to a heart that is willing to put all on the altar of sacrifice laid. My life today goes on. It means that we must scatter around us kind words and pleasant looks. These cost the giver nothing, but they leave behind a precious fragrance. Their influence for good cannot be estimated. Not only to the receiver, but to the giver they are a blessing, for they react upon him. And now this statement. Genuine love is a precious attribute of where? Heavenly origin, which increases in fragrance in proportion as it is dispensed to others. So this love is not just received one time. We can actually grow in it. And how can we receive more of it? By dispensing more to others. And as we dispense more, we receive more. The little attentions, the small acts of love and self-sacrifice that flow out from the life as quietly as the fragrance from a flower, these constitute no small share of the blessings and happiness of life. Before we close, I'd like to mention two examples in self-control. These were in the scriptures, towards the end of the New Testament. Contrast in self-control. Paul before Nero, how striking the contrast. The countenance of the monarch bearing the shameful record of the passions that raged within. I can tell you, sometimes you can tell just by looking at someone's face, there's nothing good going on in that head. <laughs> and that's the way it was with Nero. You could look at that face, and you could just see the shameful record of the passions that raged within. The countenance of the prisoner telling the story of a heart at peace with God and man. The results of opposite systems of education stood that day contrasted. Notice the results of opposite systems of what? Education. When we talk about true education, if true education does not lead 
to more comprehensive self-control, it's not education. It's one of the reasons why at Weimar we're measuring these types of things in our students. We want to make sure that we've got a measurable effect. If our students are not improving in this area, it's not true education. <laughs> the results of opposite system of education stood that day contrasted. A life of unbounded self-indulgence, who was that? Nero, and a life of entire self-sacrifice, who was that? Paul. Here were the representatives of two theories of life, all absorbing selfishness, which counts nothing too valuable to be sacrificed for momentary gratification, and self-denying endurance, ready to give up life itself, if need be, for what? For the good of others. Notice the contrast. And then she goes on to say, the soul is to be purified and ennobled and made fit for the heavenly courts. There are two lessons to be learned. Self-sacrifice and self-control. It's clear these two attributes are going to be present in everyone that is saved for eternity. No matter what their background, no matter what they might have learned, they might not even know a lot of the tenets that we know. But what they do know, they will have put into practice in self-sacrifice and self-control. So for physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health to be comprehensive and lifelong, it demands the gospel to be complete. And that's what was missing in 1991 in Tucson, Arizona. That's why, despite all that great research, the world has not changed that much. And that's why the world is looking for Adventist medical evangelists to change the world. Now I'm going to give one more serious contemplative statement. It was mentioned I do gastroenterology. And I've noticed that the area that most health practitioners condemn the patient the most is when they have cirrhosis of the liver and they only have a few liver cells left and they're instructed to go home and never drink alcohol again. And they come back in hepatic encephalopathy and they're wasted and they're drunk and now they're on death's door. And nurses and other caregivers will say, what are we doing for this patient? They're not doing anything for themselves. How terrible it is. And they will say it's some of the most despicable things about these people. But notice what the servant of the Lord says. The strongest bulwark of vice in our world is not the iniquitous life of the abandoned sinner or the degraded outcast. You would think that's the worst. It is the life which otherwise appears virtuous, honorable, and noble, but in which one sin is fostered, one vice indulged. Why is that so bad? Because the difference between good and great is exponential. This person will pass to their grave and good things will be said about them at their funeral. But that same person could have been an Apostle Paul and transformed the world around them. They don't realize how weak 
they are in their influence because of this. And if they would put all on the altar of sacrifice, and by the way, some people will say, well, self-control, you know, I have issues here or there or whatever. The nice thing about the health message is it kind of gives us a barometer and when we're doing something that we know is harmful to ourselves, the question is not where is the power of God, because the power of God is there. The question is where did self arise? And where is that self centeredness? Because that helps us to really learn some things about ourselves so that we can then again put all on the altar and become. Each one of you in this room, including me, has the opportunity to be as transformative in our world as Paul was in his. A life of entire self-sacrifice. So I would encourage you, first, as the health care giver, choose comprehensive self-control. Even the world is telling us there's no downside. Choose real self-sacrifice. Give yourself to God. Paul tells us his secret. What was it? I die daily. A life of entire self-sacrifice. And my charge to you as physicians and dentists, it's not just a nice thing to do if you have time to share spiritual insights and offer a prayer. As good as that is, it's that our patients need the gospel to be good patients. They need the gospel to be truly healed. And the beauty of medical missionary work is that they will not just be healed now, but for eternity. I will close with the last words written by the Apostle Paul in his last letter written just a few days before he was beheaded. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love. And the term love that he uses is the self-sacrificing agape love and self-control. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a message that can change us and can change the world. We thank you that you are willing to bestow your love to us fallen human beings that have a tendency for self-centeredness. And Lord, we thank you that you have shown us tonight through scripture and also in part through the scientific study how we can live a life far more abundant in you. You did come to give us life, and you came to give it more abundantly. But in order for us to be truly transformed, we need your love. And we need a willingness to trust you so much that we put all on the altar of sacrifice laid. Help us, Lord, in dealing with our patients to introduce them to your love, your gospel, and your power because they need it to be successful. And we thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name.
This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.